It's the Burt Cohen Show. History in America is made up of uh, people making history. That includes men and women. And I know for uh, most of our young education, we focused on the powerful, great men. But uh, a lot has happened in the past, oh, 50 years or so when it comes to women participating in political and cultural change. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion about where feminism is today. And our guest today on the Burt Cohen Show, I'm very pleased to have with us Anna David calling from the left coast. Anna, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Sure. Well, I'll tell the uh, listeners a bit about who you are. Anna David is the author of the novels Party Girl and Bought, both by Harper Collins, an editor of an anthology, Reality Matters, and her memoir, Falling for Me, is quite new and covers her attempt to refashion her life around the recommendations of <clears throat> Helen Gurley Brown, uh, which made 1962's Sex and the Single Girl. She's appeared repeatedly on the Today Show, Hannity, Red Eye, CNN's Showbiz Tonight, and various other programs on Fox News, NBC, MSNBC, CTV, MTV, VH1, and E!, She's a contributor to The Daily Beast, Details, and Maxim, and is currently executive editor of the addiction and recovery website, The Fix, and visits colleges across the the country to talk about addiction, which is certainly a big problem. She's been on the staff of Premier and Parenting, a full-time freelancer for People, contracted reporter for Us Weekly, and a sex columnist for Razor. Her celebrity cover stories, first-person essays, and reported pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Times, Vanity Fair, Cosmo itself, Red Book, Self, Stuff, TV Guide, Movie Line, Women's Health, Esquire, UK, Teen Vogue, Variety, and among and many other population, uh, publications. That is one impressive list. Uh, as someone who, last I checked, is, is not married, do men sometimes feel threatened by your accomplishments? And that's one thing we want to talk about with regard to feminism today. What? I do not know. You know, um, the question used to be, because I used to write so much about sex and do these sex columns, you know, my mother, my lovely Jewish mother would say, oh, my God, this is keeping you from meeting Mr. Wright. And I used to say, well, you know, Mr. Wright would not care about something like that. Um, You know what's interesting, though? I mean, I have always tended to be drawn to these sort of type A, powerful, successful, you know, men that I relate to. And I find more and more, because a lot of those men are my friends, they're not that interested in women that are, um, you know, of equal stature. Uh, most of them tend to ultimately settle down with, you know, sort of 
women who don't have careers or big personalities or anything like that, lovely girls that can be more support system. Wow, support system. And that, <clears throat> we're, we're talking about uh, some real different images. You know, there has been, back in the 50s and 60s, women didn't have really a lot of options. They were right. largely support systems was the, the narrow path that women were really directed to. And if you deviated from that, boy, that was, that was tough. And yeah. now it's, uh, it's changed quite a bit from that. And you indicated that perhaps things were better for women in the 60s. Now, I know that was not the original title of the article that you wrote, but I wonder if you could talk about now versus feminism in the 60s. I mean, I can I, I never have professed to be an expert on feminism or women's history at all. And, you know, and what I said in, in well, I wrote this piece for the Huffington Post where I said that in some ways women had it better. And what I meant by that, and I explained it in the piece, but, you know, people just sort of saw the headline and went totally crazy and didn't listen to anything else I said. But what I, what I said was that... Um, our roles were so clearly defined. Um, you know, a, a woman sort of went from her parents' house to her husband's house. I am certainly not advocating for that and saying that's better for women. Yeah. I'm just saying that when our roles were more clearly defined, we knew how to act. Um, I know hundreds, if not thousands, of women who are in my situation where we're, we're this in-between generation. You know, our mothers um, never... You know, they were so, you know, you don't have to cook, you don't have to decorate, you're liberated. And we sort of got to our adulthood and realized we didn't know how to do anything because we had spent all of our time being liberated and, um, you know, learning to be more successful than men. And um, I just think it was a little bit less confusing. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're just the in-between generation or potentially this problem will never be solved. I can't see into the future, but I think, you know you know, having it so that women can have fabulous careers, it doesn't actually solve. We can't literally do everything. Um, and the way I always felt was I felt a lot of pressure to have a big career and also to have a big, fabulous husband and big, fabulous children and um, and all of these things. And there's only so much women can do. So has a choice been made? I know it's been discussed fairly often about... Uh, what what feminism has, in some cases, perhaps unintentionally created, and that is something that a lot of people are concerned about, is that women who have chosen careers over the expense of coupling and families and sometimes express regret at those decisions. Uh, how much does that concern uh, inform your writing and views about feminism? A lot. I mean, especially because, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, um, I don't see myself as having made that choice because I never remember making it, but it's, but I wonder, did I unwittingly make it simply by pursuing a career and sort of assuming, oh, oh, I'll have time for that later. Uh, and it wasn't a conscious decision. I mean, I think that people talk about these things like they're very black and white. I think very few people say, I am going to get married and not have a career, or I am going to get a career and not get married. Um, it's just... Um, you know, it's just sort of what, some of it is just what happens to us, and some of us, some of it is just where, where our focus is. But, um, but I think I cannot tell you the number since my book has come out. 
the number of married mothers who have emailed me and said, I'm the opposite and I envy you. I regret all the choices I've made. You know, I mean, obviously humanity lives in a sort of grass is always greener state of mind. That's Mm -hmm. just sort of how we all are. But I think it's even more true for women when we simply cannot do everything. But the choices are there now, and they weren't there before. And I'm sure, Anna, David, you would agree that it's a heck of a lot better now that there are those choices for women. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just saying we have not created some utopia where it's just so fabulous. We we are um, only capable of doing so much. And, you know, I think one of the major problems, and I don't know that there's a solution, um, but it's just... And this is certainly not original, but women, we see each other as competition. Oh. And and I think one of the biggest problems is the way, uh, you know, that we've got married mothers who've made one choice, who sort of um, w- will judge people who are in my position. And then you've got people in my position. I'm just as much a part of the problem, where we judge those women who never worked for a minute and, you know, have their husbands support them. And, you know, what I wrote in one of those pieces for the Huffington Post is, I don't actually know the sacrifices women like that have made. So who am I to sit there and say that they that I'm doing better? Um, and I wish there were a solution to the way, you know, the, just the way that we judge and compete with each other. Um, and I wish that we could all just sort of, you know, say, Jesus, it's hard. We, you know, we're all going to feel like we made the wrong choice. Hmm. Um, we're all going to feel like we never, we can't do it enough. We can't do enough. Um, let's sort of embrace each other rather than finding fault with each other because, honestly, the judgment I feel about being single still, it comes from women. It doesn't come from men. Ah, interesting. We are talking with author Anna David about the state of feminism today in the 21st century. And I was remembering in the the late 60s, early 70s uh, explosion of feminism, a sense that, well, I got the impression from women that that they wanted to address this competitive nature and try to be, you know, women together, standing together, uh, arm in arm, and doing away with this, uh, you know, fierce competitive uh, nature. Has that, uh, you know, I wonder about uh, women united, you know, standing together, how much uh, that has really changed. I don't think it's changed at all. I wasn't around then, but dear God, it has not. I mean, (laughs) you know, I I didn't read the comments, really, on the Huffington Post piece, but I knew enough about them to know that they were women who were attacking me so viciously. They weren't men. Um, Interesting point. You know, I think we just... And I get it. I have the same instincts. I'm as female as you can get. Um, and I don't know that, you know, my little, oh, kumbaya solution, we should just love each other, is the answer. Um, I, you know, I don't know why men don't do this to each other and women do do this to each other. But I do think that, um, you know, in my piece I talked about, you know, always, you know, continuously writing, say, editorials about there are not enough women in this field, there are not enough women who write op-eds, there are not enough women in this. It, it makes us um, angry, 
it makes us sound angry, which, of course, we, lots of people are. Yeah, sure. But it also it relies on men to find the solution. And I don't know about you, but when I feel like someone's angry, I stop listening to yes. them. I yes. don't get whatever it is they're trying to say because I just go, oh, that's an angry person. Right. Um, and I don't, again, my kumbaya, let's just all love each other, isn't realistic. So I don't, I don't have the answers, really. Well, there's that wonderful old saying from the uh, graffiti back in Paris during the uh, student worker uprising, uh, the graffiti that said, be realistic, demand the impossible. And when you do that, it does start to make some realistic changes. And uh, this, you know, cultural change doesn't come easy. It's hard. And, to, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. I agree. I mean, it's interesting to me because I had actually, quite frankly, never heard someone say, oh, in the 60s and 70s, women made this big about how we're all going to unite. I mean, I, I know that, but not really we're going to be kinder to each other and we're not going to find fault with each other. But, I mean, if these, if I'm living in the results, then that's tragic. Well, the slogan back then was, sisterhood is powerful. I imagine it, it still can be, and it was angry, and certainly there is a lot to be angry about. And, you know, you talk about not listening to angry people. Of course, you've probably heard that old joke, you know, the old light bulb joke, how many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Right. That's not funny. That's <laughs> <laughs> And I got to say, years ago, oh, probably in the mid-70s, I was taken aback upon hearing noted feminist author and leader Andrea Dworkin. I heard her say, all male-female relations are oppressive. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, whoa, where are we right. going with that? And my goodness, we need male-female relations at the very least to uh, promote the species. That kind of anger, I wonder about what, what that does and the, the effect that it has. And I, I do see there's still a lot of resentment and anger among women who think of themselves as feminists and, you know, what to do with that, how to, you know, we have to get along with one another in the neighborhood here, you know, play nice. Uh, but, right. you know, politically, there has been uh, a repression uh, of women through the years. And uh, now we're at a place, and, and you have said that today's feminists, what they do is at best a waste of everyone's time and at worst a dangerous distraction from where we really should be focusing. And where, Anna, would that be? Well, it's really what what I've been talking about. First of all, let me say I definitely do not agree that all male-female relationships are oppressive. No, it's absurd, of course. I think, you know, I agree with you. I think that that, that is everything we say is influenced by our personal experiences. And the danger is when somebody has a lot of influence for whatever reason, and they take something that is their own personal experience and perpetuate that out in the world. Um, and that's just the kind of thing that I think is sad, and I think it doesn't help. Um, you know, what I wrote about in that piece is, um, well, Gloria Sanum, God bless her, and I'm incredibly grateful for so much of what she's done, but, you know, her latest thing was before that Playboy show was canceled, you know, going and making a big a big stink about, we have to all, you know, ban that show, nobody should watch that show because it glamorizes something that was never glamorous, and everybody knew that show was terrible. Um, it was unwatchable. Nobody <laughs> saw it and went, oh, God, Playboy is just so glamorous. And I just think when you've got that kind of influence, why spend your time 
getting people, you know, all riled up about something that doesn't matter like that. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it does, because I certainly never saw the show, and it's it's gone. And you have... Was, go ahead. Yes. It was gone instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it just wasn't a good show. So fighting that ancient thing. Tell us a bit about the impact that Helen Gurley Brown has made on your thinking. And, and you say that the Cosmo pioneer had, quote, a far better message than a lot of what the standard issue feminists today are saying. How does she compare with feminist institutions like Gloria Steinem? Well, Helen Gurley Brown was um, a very interesting, is, because she is still alive, yes. is a very interesting feminist icon because she's somebody, um, to me, a true icon. She was, uh, before she ever wrote Sex and the Single Girl, she was uh, one of the highest paid copywriters in advertising. And then she wrote this book, and then she was the editor-in-chief of Cosmo for 30 years, I think. And she was somebody who very, her first argument was always, women, go have your careers. And I mean, this was, again, in the 60s, um, way before her time. And people think of her as somebody who wrote cover lines about the best ways to please your man in bed. And while she did that, too, her first, her first uh, mission was to get women working and loving their careers and supporting themselves. And to me, that is an incredibly strong message, and it's one I have followed. And, you know, she was also somebody who never said, you can't be sexy. You can be a feminist and be sexy. And the message I got um, in the 70s was, and 80s was very much, um, if you know, a true feminist, um, you know, does not rely on that. I was not allowed to play with Barbies, yeah. for example, because, you know, they, the, you know, the sort of messages that, that they gave about women. I have all, I've just never thought that being a strong, supportive, you know, amazing feminist was, you know, you couldn't also be a sexual creature. I think that's oppressive. I couldn't agree with you more. We're talking with Anna David, author of a whole bunch of books, including uh, the you're editor of uh, the anthology uh, Reality Matters and the new one, Falling for Me, which I guess is doing pretty well on HarperCollins. And, uh, you know, that, that thing about sexuality and repressed sexuality, I've, I've just had this impression of late that there's a lot of uh, uh, sense that, uh, you know, women are actively not all women, but some women, are actively pushing down their their sexuality and becoming kind of puritanical again. And I just, I, I have a hard time with that. Men are sexual beings. Women are sexual beings. You know, let's somehow get used to that and, and not repress it. And, and the, the image of, uh, certainly the Andrea Dworkin image of, you know, a hard-charging woman who, you know, was angry at men all the time, you know that that's like really not in touch with uh, one's sexuality, and right. and you know when you talk about the the Barbie thing, you know I as a boy, uh, my parents didn't want me to play with guns because well guns kill people and you know, but right. guess what we still may, had sticks and you know had our hands that could shoot you know you, you play All with right. that. And, and I have uh, two wonderful daughters, one of whom was not in the least bit interested in Barbie, but the other one has been. She loves dolls. She loves Barbie. And 
I, I think it takes, dare I say, parental involvement to talk about it, you know, that that this is not your only choice. You don't have to be, you know, this uh, Barbie-looking girl. Uh, but, you know, if you, you know, it seems to be, I mean, boys generally don't play with Barbies. I suppose some boys do. But, you know, to say that boys shouldn't and it just, you know, there's that freedom to say you can't play with Barbies. I can't help but think that, uh, you know, that could lead to a uh, a reaction to that. You know, we've seen sexual repression lead often to a rebellion against that and becoming irresponsibly libertine, uh, which right. can contribute to rather empty sexual hookups, I would think. So we are on the subject of sex. <laughs> well... I think it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, sexuality is an incredibly complicated subject, but I agree with you. Um, I think it's extremely complicated, sexuality for women, because I know, um, you know, I grew up, and, and this, is part of, this is part of why I look back longingly at the 60s. Part of me thinks it's better when it was, you know, your sexuality was a gift you bestowed upon a man, and this was something special that you saved for the one you love. You know, I grew up at a time where it was sort of said, you're liberated, you can do whatever you want, and yet I think m- almost most women, when they're not in a committed relationship, feel a lot of shame if they're sexual. Hmm. Um, I, I know that's something I have experienced. And so, I, you know, I, I none of us ever knew how to behave. Oh, is, you know, and just the slut word, and, and what does it all mean? And so I think that the last thing we need are other women telling us, if you are sexy, you are not a, re- you're not a real feminist, really? Yeah. Um, but, I, but I don't think that's the entire problem. I think, um, you know, we just do not know what to do with female sexuality, and um, it's a bit of a tragedy, I think. Yeah, really. We have to, I mean... As I say, it's always been uh, part of who we are, and uh, so it's still evolving. Would you would you say that that it's still evolving? Because you know, if you're you're too uh, overtly sexy, you know, a lot of other women look down on you, and and men even, you know, get these images. You use yep. the 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 S word there, and and how that's got to be challenging. I mean, men, frankly, I don't think have that problem really. No, you don't. You guys do not. <laughs> um, no, I think it's I think it's a big problem, and I do not think it's improving at all. Um, I think we live in an incredibly repressed society, and yet sex is everywhere. Um, you know, we have sort of porn stars that become mainstream celebrities, Gina Jameson, people like that. Um, you know, we have Howard Stern, who I happen to love, talking about sex very openly, and then we're so uncomfortable talking about sex that then, you know, uh, the highest-paid golfer were just shocked and dismayed that he was having sex with as many women as he could. Really? <laughs> you know, we're shocked by these political scandals. Right. I'm not shocked. I'm shocked by how shocked the world seems to be by them because, um, you know, it's a newsflash that men who have more power and money than the rest of us can will try to have sex with as many women as possible. How is that news? Right. It's it's denying reality. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I quoted uh, Kurt Vonnegut. I'm going to do it again. He had something in, uh, oh, I believe it was Cat's Cradle. I may be wrong, 
but uh, where there's this island nation where there's something called Boko Maru, where the natives touch their feet together. The male and the female just sit across from each other and touch the bottoms of their feet. And if you do that, and if you're caught, it's punishable by death. <laughs> and guess what? Everybody does it. So here we have this, you know, frown, this puritanical, you know, it's so different here in these currently United States about uh, uh, sex. It's just, we're, we're very puritanical. The, the Puritans came here and founded this nation. It seems like they're still in charge. And yet, it, right. it, it, the people on the hard right, the social conservative right, uh, you know, are just so down on sexuality. They just want to put it down completely. And yet, who are the guys that are getting busted for, you know, uh, 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 locker room things and, and bathroom hookups and just this right. hidden, repressed stuff, these evangelicals? The, the guys, the people who are most against it are the ones who seem most obsessed by it. So I wonder, right. I suppose men do have that problem as well. It's like, uh, you know, what what do we do with this here? We are talking with Anna David, author of many books about uh, feminism, sexuality, and talking today about where feminism is in 2011. And a few years ago, I went to Paris, and it was a beautiful city, wonderful art, great food, and I couldn't help but be aware of the difference in how not all, but a lot of the women dress. It seems to be they're more comfortable looking sexually attractive, where if women dress like that the same dress in the U.S., they'd risk being looked down on as trashy. What, what what are the effects of American on American women of them desexualizing themselves and so aggressively repressing their femininity? I mean, feminism and femininity sometimes seem to be at odds with one another. Absolutely. I mean, and that was very much in my book. Um, you know, what I did, I took everything Helen Gurley Brown recommended in Sex and the Single Girl, and I did it to myself. And I learned to cook, and I learned to decorate, and I learned to dress sexy, and I learned to do all of these things that I had always been told because I was a liberated woman I didn't have to do or I shouldn't do. And it felt so good. Um, I've never understood this notion of, you know, femininity and feminism being mutually exclusive. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, earlier in my career, I used to write for Playboy magazine, and they used to uh, photograph me in very sexy, you know, scantily clad and sexy photos. And um, I wrote about this in the Huffington Post piece, but the first time I did that, I did it with another writer who was just very offended by this notion that they wanted to shoot us in sexy poses and stuff like that. You know, and she said, I'm a writer, I'm a feminist, I cannot be shot like this. And it's just, I, I remember just being sort of dumbfounded because, honestly, even though, you know, my mom is a feminist and I grew up in Northern California and she got her PhD at Berkeley, it just shocked me that, that, that you couldn't be both. And, you know, that's also, why, you know, one of the reasons I so gravitated towards Helen Curley Brown because she always strongly believed you could be both. I mean, men, we'd all love to have, you know, great, wonderful bodies as well. And guess what? We don't all. But those of us that do, <laughs> <laughs> those of us that do, I, and I, I do know people like that, I think, uh, but <laughs> I'm not one of But, you know, we, we wouldn't mind being out there. And, you know, men would like to have, you know, super bodies. And you know, the fact that we don't, so what? You know, if we did, we'd be happy to show them off, I'm sure. 
So I, right. you know, just being being comfortable with the sexuality, and the other, I mean, obvious subject for for feminism that has come up and uh, through the years is what to do with the uh, the concept, the institution of marriage. And I remember May mm. West, May West being famous for saying, "Marriage is a great institution, but who wants to be institutionalized?" One and you say one thing that seems to be missing is the feminist argument against marriage and the social and cultural primacy that we give it. I will say, you know, I my joke, and you know, I get nervous saying this was, you know, about gay marriage. I was like, I mean, I don't even know that I believe in straight marriage. Why am I advocating for gay marriage? Um, I think that. You know, but but at the same time, I mean, quite frankly, I hope to one day get married and um and and do all of that. I just think that to hold it up as this American ideal, as the dream, is just you know to hold anything up as the ideal. I think is dangerous, but especially something that that clearly does not work for everyone does work for some people. Um, you know, I guess we all have different different definitions of what work means, anyway, but um. But I just, um, you know, I don't know, because I'm sure you saw the Atlantic cover story this month, this really, really thorough, long, kind of wonderful piece by this woman, Kate Bollock, about um, she's single at 39, and, um, you know, sort of I, the overall message potentially being, you know, is marriage obsolete? Mm. And I don't, I don't really know. Um, I, I do know that though there are, you know, increasing numbers of single people and people choosing not to get married, um, the societal message that if you are not married, there is something terribly right. wrong with you if right. you are female right. is very strong. I mean, it's, it's basically the reason I wrote the book that I did, is that I was sort of, you know, being weighed down by that message, and I had so internalized it that I had just started turning on myself and just sort of going, what is wrong with you? Seriously, you know, and, and it took kind of doing this whole project and embracing the values of the 60s and Helen Gurley Brown to get me to see there's nothing wrong with me. I'm exactly where I'm meant to be. You're exactly where you're meant to be. And it's, you know, the problem was that I had really started to buy into what society told me was right. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. That That is a kind of repression in itself, for sure. That, uh, Definitely. And uh, you know, really, if if you look at the notions of romance, it and and marriage for that matter, it's relatively recent in human it history. Is. It's only been around for about three hundred years, and the the hardcore right, you know, just uh, has this uh, uh, worship of marriage. It's it's rather odd how aggressive they are about marriage. But is just between a man and a woman, and. You know, the reality is that, that one marriage does has no effect on any other marriage, gay, straight, or whatever, that marriage itself, you know, it's it's difficult. And when marriage was created, <clears throat> excuse me, as an institution, people lived to be maybe 45 years old on average. Right. And, and, and now they don't. I have a, a friend who suggested the option of a five-year renewable contract. <laughs> And, you know, I, I wonder that, you know, is it that these traditional strictures around romance and marriage may be, may be changing? Here we have the, the rush toward, toward gay marriage. And, you know, it's great. Of course, gay people deserve equality, you know, and, 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 and you know, the, the law, the legal uh, rights 
that come with that. But, uh, you know, I, I, are you optimistic that uh, the tradition around romance and marriage may be changing the pressure, the still intense pressure? I mean, we still have this tremendous corporate advertising around weddings and the what's been called the wedding industrial complex and right. uh, what they want. So I wonder if you could speak to that. Well, I'm not that optimistic. Um, <laughs> I think I, I, I look back longingly on the days when marriage was, you know, it was the merging of properties. It right. was, you know, a family arrangement. Um, just because like today we expect our partner to be our best friend, our lover, our therapist, our colleague a lot of times. Um, it's completely unrealistic. And I think that, you know, because I used to be a sort of sex dating and relationship advisor, and all the questions people would send me had to do with how they just didn't feel like they had what everyone else has. Well, nobody has whatever that is. I mean, maybe two, 2% of the population. But we set ourselves up for such failure with these high expectations. And yeah, I just don't think it's realistic. I mean, quite frankly, it's obviously not realistic to, that you're going to only be attracted to one person for the rest of your life. And while right. I think commitment is wonderful, and I think a lot, you know, a lot of it is making a decision, obviously, that no matter what you're attracted to, you will not stray. Um, I, it's just not realistic. Um, and I was always somebody when I grew up, um, you know, I, I don't, my parents did not have a great marriage. You know, my dad isn't all that great a guy. And I just looked at marriage and I said, my God, I'm going to wait till the last possible moment when I can still do this. Because I just didn't, you know, I just it didn't look like an appealing prospect. And what's funny, you know, what's interesting about Helen Gurley Brown is, you know, she, what she says over and over again in Sex and a Single Girl is, you know, marriage is for the worst years of your life. It's insurance. Go have a fantastic time now and do that later. She did not get married till she was 37, and that was in the 60s, which, you know, so that's the equivalent of waiting till 60 now. Ah, true. Interesting. And, you know, men have kind of the, the same thing, too, that, you know, men expect, they look to their marriages for, you know, friendship and, and support and pretty much everything, and to the uh, detriment of, of friendships. You know, it does seem to me, as a straight man, I admit I'm a straight man, uh, <laughs> that, that... That's how you could admit you, had, you made a mistake. Oh, Although a gay man could admit that, too. Go on. Oh, oh boy, there we're getting into some... Uh, I, I, uh, I, can't, I can't interrupt. I, I get in trouble. Keep going, Bert. I apologize. Well, I want to talk about stereotypes later on. But uh, that that men, you know, could use uh, uh, more friendships. Women seem to be have an easier time of, of being with other women and getting out, you know, women's night out and all that stuff, and uh, right. and and having that kind of friendship. But but men, you know, it's kind of uh, it, it can be, you know, when you expect too much to come from, you know, just being with one other person, that can be too much. But then there's the subject of procreating the species, yeah. kids. Now. Uh, the argument is made pretty clearly that kids need a mother and a father. And in many sense, you know, kind of seems like a, a, a female influence and a male influence is largely a good thing. Now, that, yep. doesn't, that doesn't always happen for sure. But, you know, what, if the, the model of marriage is the best way to bring up kids is, you know, in question and fading, 
what can be there to replace it to have healthy, well-adjusted, uh, uh, secure children? I don't know, but I do agree that it's it's the ideal. You know, I'm somebody who always I always have wanted to have one child. You know, and I've been at the age for a while now where people have said, "Well, gosh, I mean, why don't you do it on your own?" And I just have no interest in that. I mean, I. I you know, even just selfishly, I don't. I don't think I'm capable of that, um, and That's I do think thing, it's yeah. really important. Um, you know, I have a friend who um, who got pregnant. She never married the guy, um, but they co-parent, and the daughter's four years old. And now she, she just got pregnant by him again, and. They don't live together, and I was telling her, I think she's got the ideal situation, and she said, I know, you know, her, her child, when she, when she's with the mother, she gets the mother all to herself. When she's with the father, she gets the father all to himself. There was no divorce. This is just all that this child has known. And, um, you know, part of me thinks that sounds ideal and realistic. Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, each parent is relating directly with each child, no matter what, if they're in a marriage, if they're not in a marriage, that, you know, doing things together, making decisions together, bringing them up together, uh, you know, that's a part of it. But there's also the time each individual has, and that's the, the wonderful times that each parent, the mother and the father, has with the kid. And that can certainly be the case with or without uh, traditional marriage. Mm-hmm. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, talking with Anna David, author of uh, many books, a commentator on many different issues, and uh, works also with addiction and recovery, which is certainly a big issue uh, in this in this country. And we're talking now about uh, where feminism is today. And, uh, you know, I, talking about male-female relations, I, I worry that my own daughters— about them when they see the signs that that as as you say women sometimes feel like their very identity is based on male approval i i okay. see that a lot i have a 10 year old and a 15 year old and okay. i i would think feminism can be helpful in this regard uh i know you you don't have kids no teenage daughters for sure but uh but what are your your thoughts on this you know how about you know Seeking male approval. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that here we are in 2011 and, and girls still are seeking male approval. Is this something that's just universal and will never change? Or I, I'm uncomfortable about this. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I do think it's true. Um, I, I, that is sort of what my problem is, even with what a lot of, you know, today's feminists that is, you're still asking for male approval of this anger and men to change. And um, I, I don't really know. I mean, I'm as much a, a part of the problem as anybody. I definitely <laughs> seek male approval. And um, I, I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, men seek female Absolutely. approval, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, is it really a problem or is it just a reality? Um, we all want to be ap- approved by everybody, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I seek female approval just as much. I mean, this kind of hits on some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. But I, you know, before I did this book, what I what I got to in in looking at how I sort of put myself together out in the world, I always sort of felt shame sure. about 
you know, oh, let me put on a dress and makeup. And I felt shame in front of other women that there was something wrong with doing that, that that meant I was vain, that that meant I cared too much, or I didn't care about the right things. And, you know, it had never occurred to me to do these things for myself because it's going to make me feel good. Um, and, you know, that's something that, you know, Helen Gurley Brown very much advocates in her book and I very much got into in my book. Yeah, and it does, I, I suppose I can see it, having daughters, it, it, I can see how it, it's sort of fun for them. And I'm reminded of back in the, you know, early 70s when, when feminism was still in its early stages, although there have always been strains of it, but, you know, the concept of you don't shave your legs, you don't shave your armpits, and, you know, I'm, I'm frankly glad we don't see that that much anymore. You know, there are differences between men and women. Vive la différence, you know. Uh, and we talked a little bit earlier about uh, uh, men, and I am concerned. Occasionally, I watch television, and mm. I'm concerned how men are portrayed. There's obviously Homer Simpson, and now there's the uh, guy, I don't know of his name, on Modern Families. We, a straight men, are portrayed as universally simple and bumbling and I wonder how feminism has affected that unfortunate stereotype that, that's, you know, frankly pretty tough for men to take. I don't know. I mean, I, um, I, I have actually never seen Modern Family, though. I hear it's great. Yeah, it is. You know, I don't think that's the, and that's the only way men are portrayed. I think that... Um, I wish I had more television examples. I'm not a big yeah. television watcher. But, well, you know the stereotype. I do know the stereotype. I, I don't really buy into it. Um, you know, the Simpsons, Bart Simpson, whatever. It, that's hilarious on The Simpsons. Um, but I think there are all sorts of uh, male stereotypes out there. Far more male stereotypes, I think, probably than there are female stereotypes. Um, yeah, I suppose you're right. And, you know, we, we, we see images on the media still that, uh, you know, reinforce beliefs that... Single women without kids are resentful, sad, and bitter. Or to portray the lone single woman on a reality show as the underdog. You've been concerned about the cultural impact these messages may have. I wonder how that can be taken on. I mean, there seems to, like all stereotypes, of course, there's some basis somewhere in in reality on that. But uh, it's it's a tough thing. And I'm sure you, as a single person, have felt that as well. It's got to be tough to fight against. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of exactly why I sort of got so down on myself and, and felt the need to do this book. Um, you know, that the reality show, you know, one is a great example of there were on the Real Housewives of New York, this character, this woman, Bethany, was, oh, the underdog, she's single, poor Bethany, and then she meets a guy, and suddenly she's the great success story, and she gets her own spin-up show, and she's too big for the Real Housewives, and, you know, even Sex and the City, which, I you know, I was a huge fan of Sex and the City, I'm a complete target audience, but, um, you know, I mean, it was nice that single women were, I mean, ju you know, judge them how you want, but, you know, were portrayed as fabulous and, you know, something to aspire to. At the same time, that was the single life as imagined by a lot of fabulous gay men. You know, yeah. that, the creator of that show and most of the staff writers were gay men. Um, I don't know how accurate it, it is or was. Uh, interesting point. Well, you know, in so much... 
we go to the theater, we go to uh, to movies and, and watch TV for fantasies. You know, it is largely right. about fantasies, and, and fantasies right. are, in their nature, uh, exaggerated. Definitely. And, and, and you talk about uh, the pressure not to be a, quote, needy girl, unquote. Certainly it's, it's not healthy for anybody, male or female, to be too needy. But then again, it can't really be too healthy to repress that neediness too much. How does right. this pressure feed into sexist stereotypes? I think it's extremely confusing because, I mean, again, the messages that, you know, I was sort of raised with were be independent. You don't need anybody. You can do it all. And I know from, I can only really speak about me personally. I sort of used to vacillate between this just extreme independence, I don't need anybody, to a puddle, a chasm of need, you know, where I would sort of switch to the other other side of things, and suddenly I couldn't do anything for myself. I mean, and it really was, um, the dichotomy between the two was, was shocking. I think um, through doing this book, I really got in touch with that and um, and have curbed it a lot. I mean, a lot of it was you know, finding a middle ground. Mm. I, uh, you know, and, and you mentioned, you know, the work that I do with addiction. You know, I'm, I'm sober. It'll be 11 years in November. Mazel and, tough. and th- thank you. And I edit this website about addiction and recovery and a lot of work in recovery has to do with finding the middle ground, you know, with sort of the, the highs and lows of before and, you know, sort of dealing with deep insecurities and masking it with alcohol and drugs and all of these mm. things. And, and I think that um, that neediness really, and you know, falls into that. You know, when I got sober, I had got you know, I had been the most dependent creature alive, in literally on drugs, and then literally in terms of I couldn't provide for myself really. And then I got sober, and suddenly I was, I got this great career, and I could do all of these things for myself. And I write in my book that it was like in doing that, in getting myself together, I worried I got. Now I got myself two together. Yeah. I just didn't need anybody. And this book and this project and where I am now is all about realizing, hey, it's okay to say, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I need help. I don't have the answers. And, um, and I think if, you, if I can do that, and I can really only speak for myself, then, then I don't vacillate between being the most independent woman alive and the chasm of need. Hmm. Interesting how much wisdom comes from uh, resolving addiction it, and, and dealing with the issues that why one is faced with, with insecurity and, and the uh, you know, expectations and demands and, and to be yeah. at peace with yourself. And it sounds like you know, that's what one thing that we're trying to get to here about you know, some of the early demands of, of feminism about repressing femininity and, and just not wearing makeup and not caring about being attractive to men, being completely independent and totally rejecting that uh, versus, you know, on the other hand, being uh, the other extreme, of course, we all know what that is, you know, just uh, totally uh, uh, depending on men and, and being, you know, some old image of, of the, uh, you know, there, there's, you know, throughout uh, 20th century uh, uh, novels and, and comic books, you know, the, the heroic men rescuing the poor, frail woman that, you know, may have been in existence in the antebellum South as well. But guess what? There's something in between. And 
you know, it's not easy to do that. It's easy to have extremes and to have those definitions there for us. I suppose in some ways it was reassuring for women uh, to, to be able to be the, uh, uh, the, the southern women, if you will, since, since I got on that subject, uh, of just being you know, dependent on men being the weak, frail things and, and manipulating that for their own purposes. But you know, having that freedom, freedom isn't easy. For sure, you know it takes it takes responsibility, and certainly, it's okay for men to be men, women to be women, and to actually celebrate what makes us different. And you know, it's funny as I say that I think about you know years past how just saying that I could get uh, criticized for that. You know that that men and women are different, and that we don't have to be uh, more like the other. So I think it's an interesting place where we are in this history right now. And, uh, well, I wonder if you feel hopeful along those lines. As, we, as we've established in this discussion, a lot of it hasn't been resolved. But uh, where do you see it going from here? And do you feel optimistic for feminism in the future? I don't know. I think it's extremely complicated. Because, I mean, and this is what I wonder is, oh, you know, I say, oh, we're at such a complicated time right now and these issues haven't been resolved. But what could happen to, I mean, how would it get better in the next generation? We still want to have careers. We still want to have kids. Um, Is the solution for, you know, type A career women to be with type B, you know, uh, men who can raise the children? I don't know. Um... I will say that of the of my friends who are married um, and have big careers, they are all married to men who are subordinate, men who either gave up their careers or, in one case, actually kind of is the, almost the assistant, helps that career. Um, you know, I think that I, I, I don't... I don't know where we're going. We cannot mm. have it all. And... Um, you know, unless we can invent another gender that's half man, half woman, that can do be the third person in the marriage that can pick up the slack. I don't know. I certainly don't have the answers. Well, wouldn't it be much easier if everybody had a whole bunch of money and could just have uh, servants to bring up the kids and do all the housework? <laughs> well, I know, but I know you're joking, but the truth is, I mean, in those cases... Those poor kids being raised by nannies, that's no solution either. Absolutely. I just... Like, I really don't, I don't mean to be such a pessimist, but I don't really know where the solution could come from. Well, you know, certainly I think there's that old feminist expression, men of, uh, men of, of quality are not threatened by women of equality. And, right. But there has to be some kind of a mix. You talk about some, well, sounding a little bit uh, at, at one end or the other, the the strong woman, you know, CEO, whatever, and the man who is subordinate. You know, that's that's one extreme. It used to be the other way around, and it was extremely hard for men in the 50s to be everything, to be the breadwinner, to be a good parent, and, you know, to be involved in everything. So, you know, maybe having strong men and strong women, you know, sort of uh, evolved men and evolved women, it ain't easy. It's certainly not easy because we can't be everything. You know, just as a woman can't be, you know, totally devoted to her job full time and be a totally devoted uh, uh, wife and mother, the same is true for a man. So 
I, I know, but but realistically, I mean, I don't have a lot of empathy for the 50s man. Yeah, I mean, sure. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what's going on in the family. The You know, the symbiotic tie is between the mother and the child, and the mother has to physically be pregnant and give birth. So no matter how much pressure there is, there was then and there is now on men to be wonderful fathers, it's just not the same thing. Well, that's true. A, a, a man, as I've discovered myself, I, I'm, I'm not a real mother. I You're not a real mother. You are many <laughs> things, that you a mother you are not. Ain't never going to happen. And, you know, that's just the way things are. But, it, you know, life is complicated, and uh, I would hope that things are getting better. It sounds like a real interesting book. The new book is uh, Falling for Me. Tell us a little bit about that before we uh, come to the end of the hour. Well, basically, yeah, it's called Falling for Me, How I Hung Curtains, uh, Traveled to Seville, and Fell in Love. And it is about, uh, I took uh, Helen Gurley Brown, Sex and the Single Girl, published in 1962, and tried out everything she recommended to live a fabulous single life. Um, and I tried it out in 2010 and um, completely re- revamped my wardrobe, my apartment, mm. And my soul, you know, and a lot of it was getting to my challenging myself to do all these things that had always terrified me. So in the process, I went uh-huh. surfing. I traveled to Spain by myself for a month. I did not speak a word of Spanish. Um, and I really came to see, you know, I sort of had embarked on this project thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to become perfect. And then I'm going to meet the perfect man. And, and neither happened. Um, and I realized I sort of had something better because I had complete acceptance about where I was and where I am and faith that it will all happen how it's meant to, and it has been happening how it's meant to. So um, I'm very proud. It's my first book to get very wonderful reviews, and um, it seems to be striking a chord. I get lots of emails from people who cry and laugh, but the tears, the tears are what I'm after. <laughs> wow. So I can see why it's popular, I must say. Well, Anna David, your website is what? Triple W AnnaDavid.com? Yes. Couldn't be easier. Couldn't be easier. No, it couldn't. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today on the Burt Cohen Show. Raise a lot of questions, not a lot of answers, but interesting to look at. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bert. Take care. All right. Bye. And here was something from Kate Bush now. But the hounds of love. My email, Bert at BertCohen.com. Love to hear from you. Thanks. <laughs>